When the Conservative Party was elected in late 2019, its manifesto included a pledge to end rough sleeping in England by 2024. No one could have predicted the government would come close to fulfilling this promise just a few months later when it attempted to house all rough sleepers at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The Everyone In initiative, as it came to be known, raised hopes that ending rough sleeping in England was within grasp. But now, almost two years after the UK entered its first lockdown, many have returned to the streets and the early pandemic optimism feels like a distant memory. In this episode of the Housing Podcast, we'll ask, is the government on track to end rough sleeping by 2024? Hello, I'm Jack Simpson, news editor here at Inside Housing. And today for the Housing Podcast, I'm joined by deputy news editor, Lucy Heath. Say hello, Lucy. Hey, Jack. Um, Lucy, we're speaking today just hours after the government's latest annual rough sleeping data has been released. Um, I've been having a little look at it and you have as well. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what, what the data is telling us today? Yeah, sure. So according to the data, there were 2,440 people sleeping rough at the date of the last rough sleeping count, which was in autumn last year. So this figure is 9% lower than the number of people counted in 2020. um, And it is the lowest figure in eight years. So just with that in mind, obviously today's episode will be about the government's target of trying to end rough sleeping by 2024. That's obviously two, two years away. On the surface, it seems like they're making progress with these figures today. Um, is it going in the right direction, the government? Yeah, you're right. I think on the surface, these figures certainly indicate that the government is heading in the right direction. However, the rough sleeping count has always been quite controversial. And there's a lot of debate in the homelessness sector about how much we should really read into these figures. The rough sleeping count is intended to provide a snapshot of how many people are sleeping rough in a single night in England. Um, councils can kind of choose one of two ways to provide their figure. Um, one way is simply to just go out on one night, um, it always is in the autumn, and just count how many people they see bedding down on the streets. Um, The other way is, I think it's called an evidence-based estimate, where basically the council gets together with other local agencies and like together they agree on what they think that that figure is for one typical night. Um, I'm sure people listening can like immediately think of a few issues with what, how, with this data set. So, I mean, there are so many factors that can influence how many people are sleeping on the streets in a single night. Like one of the most simple and obvious ones is the weather. Um, Also, we know that so many people experiencing homelessness sleep in all different types of places like public transport. They can sleep on a friend's sofa one night, sleep on the street the next. Um, And so a lot of people believe, I think rightly so, that the count massively underestimates how many people are sleeping rough. Um, However, like, this data set is the best thing we probably have at the moment, at least um, for measuring rough sleeping outside of London. Um, And the count does have a few merits as well that I'm sure we can talk about later. Yeah, because you've been speaking to quite a few people over the last few weeks for for the podcast. And and on that issue specifically, I think you've been speaking to someone on the count and various other things. Yeah, yeah. So I thought now kind of, 
two years before the 2024 deadline and two years after the Everton In initiative first started was a good time to kind of take stock and ask a few people how they thought the government was getting on with its target. So I've spoken to three people, all with three very different perspectives on the issue. Um, it's not all going to be about data. So if data isn't <laughs> your thing, please stick with us. But the first person that I did speak to is Dr. Legia Tixiera, who works at the Centre for Homelessness Impact, which is an organisation that's all about using data and evidence in order to end homelessness. And I started asking by asking her whether she thought the count was a good way for um, to measure rough sleeping. Well, it's the way we currently use, and it serves a really useful purpose. Many countries, including in the global north, don't collect any data. So really? the UK um, collects better data than most of the countries, which is fantastic. Could we do better? Uh, absolutely. And that's one of the things we certainly learned during the pandemic. So, yeah, how could we improve how we measure rough sleeping? So currently, uh, we use uh, the, the rough sleeping counts, and you could always obviously uh, do more counts rather than just once uh, a year. You could also uh, ensure that you're looking at different types of um, uh, rough sleeping. So you can look um, at the flow in more detail, as well as ensuring that we have data that tells you the length of time that people are on the streets with more accuracy. So you can both use the data to respond uh, to people faster, as well as monitor how well we're doing. And of course, in order to end rough sleeping sustainably, you also need to understand whether people are going back to the streets after they've been housed. Yeah. So it's about, I guess, ensuring that we have all the data we need to both understand the scale of the problem, but most importantly for us to also respond better and faster to people in need. I think one criticism that I've heard a lot of the count is that people think it underestimates rough sleeping. And, you know, the, I think the count before the pandemic, so in like 2019, estimated that there was around like 3,000 to 4,000 people rough sleeping. And then through the pandemic and through everyone in, I think the government ended up housing like over 30,000 people. Like how, how can you explain like such a broad difference in numbers? Well, I think it's almost, you know, uh, the discussions around the methodology, um, the danger is that they're almost a, a distraction because, you know, we've always known that point in time counts don't give you a precise number of the, the level of people affected by the issue at any one time. Mm. They were never intended to do that, but they do serve the purpose of giving you a sense of overall trends. So they've mm. always served a useful purpose. Does that mean that we shouldn't aim to be gathering, uh, you know, more real-time data? Of course not. So that's where we need to move to next. Um, so uh, what we encourage people to do is definitely to focus on if, if there's better stuff we could be doing, what does that look like and support local areas to do exactly that rather than, um, uh, you know, talk about the pros and cons of a particular methodology, because the reality is no data set will always give you a complete picture. So mm -hmm. let's focus on <laughs> what's missing. Let's just do something about it. So we're now only two years away from the government's target of ending rough sleeping in 2024. Um, what do you think it will look like 
from a data perspective? That might be an obvious question. You know, we might think, okay, zero people rough sleeping, but I think it's probably more complicated than that. Um, that's a very good question, Lucy. So from a data perspective, um, the first thing you need is a clear definition of what we mean by ending rough sleeping. Mm -hmm. So this is why um, we've been working closely with local areas as well as the government to um, uh, think about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Because unless you have a clear conceptual uh, qualitative definition of what ending rough sleeping means, you won't be able to then understand uh, what data needs to be collected in its entirety and then track progress towards that goal. So we know uh, through the pandemic that um, uh, the, the, the simple point in time counts uh, may not be sufficient to get us towards that goal. Um, so what data do we need to collect to ensure that we're stopping the flow of new people into homelessness, as well as responding quickly, as well as ensuring that people don't go back to street homelessness once they've been housed? And let's ensure and support local areas to collect that data, because outside London, uh, it's, it's even uh, scarcer, the, the data that we need to respond effectively to ensure that we're on track. So... Uh, from our perspective, as um, you know, as a work center that's you know completely apolitical and whose only concern is to ensure that we're using the best evidence and data, uh, and data available to end homelessness for good, um, our concern is to ensure that um, uh, people um, you know do see it as an imperative that we keep doing our best at all times to address this issue, but then that we do adopt a clear definition that puts a lot of emphasis on prevention of rough sleeping in particular. Mm -hmm. So that's very much about um, driving prevention upstream, which is uh, sounds easy and everyone, I've never met anyone who disagrees with that, and yet is incredibly difficult to achieve in practice. So yeah. how do we ensure that any definition of ending rough sleeping we introduce does help local areas focus more on prevention than ever, as well as the government, and then ensuring that we have the systems in place locally so that outreach workers have that data that they need to go and respond to the problems quickly, make sure that they um, don't um, allow anyone to be out in the streets for very long at all and make sure that once they're there, um, once they're housed, they don't go back. And we know that these things are difficult, but the first step is, is to introduce that very simple definition, the framework that does hold everyone accountable from local areas to the government. And finally, the type of data that then will allow us to understand how we're using resources, you know, to draw insight into what works, for whom, zooming in on particular groups, whether it's prison leavers, whether it's you know um, single women fleeing domestic violence, whether it's care leavers, um, to get to take our wonderful work um, in in England uh, and elsewhere in UK to the next level. That's the level of granularity that's missing. That all sounds very sensible and definitely very much like something that we should be doing. But it strikes me, I guess, that we are only two years away from this goal and still at the point of defining what the goal is. Do you think 
really that it's possible to do this by 2024? I think it's it's uh, it should be possible to end rough sleeping um, in most areas of England, for sure. There's areas of the country like Westminster with much higher levels mm-hmm. than anywhere else in England. So specific areas like Westminster, like the city of London, may need a different uh, uh, target, a different uh, success measure, if you like. So what we're very keen to do is to ensure that wherever success measures people are working towards are realistic. So again, taking the data where people are today and making sure that the areas that are close to to um, to, to that zero, to that uh, goal that feels um, very realistic for a very dynamic problem like street homelessness that are aiming towards that, while areas um, like Westminster, the City of London, where the problems are uh, of very different of nature, that's, you know, the goals are, are very ambitious, but realistic o- over time as well. Um, because otherwise, what you do is to create almost a disincentive for, you know, people in local areas and, you know, working on the ground to, to address to address this problem. Mm. I think for people who don't work in this space, ending rough sleeping might seem like a really ambitious goal. And unfortunately, rough sleeping is kind of big. In a lot of people's mind, they think of it as an inevitability in society. Um, I'm curious, have we ever came close or has any other countries ever came close to ending rough sleeping before? Like, What did that look like? That's a very good question. So we've looked far and wide to the evidence, um, you know, both within uh, the, the the UK as well as internationally. And the data available is very sparse, uh, as you know. But if you take, um, you know, point in time counts, which is the only type of data that you can compare internationally, um, the England does uh, very well indeed, and uh, only Japan and South Korea appear to be doing any better. And let me just stress that the data is not directly comparable, but it seems that we're faring um, uh, quite well. So, and in particular, there's no example of a mega city like London, just mm-hmm. as an example, claiming to have ended. Uh, rough sleeping across the board in its entirety across a whole mega city. So again, f- from for our pr- from our perspective, it's about really being very specific about the levels of reduction that you want to see in any one area. That's how you're going to get to that next level of, of performance because many areas across the country are doing really well. So let's be transparent about that and let's sustain. Uh, those those levels, but then there's areas that have unique challenges, whether it's housing pressures, whether or whether it's many people with no recourse to public funds. They have those unique challenges need to be recognised, and you can still have incredibly tough, you know, um, success measures. But you need to uh, taper them over time, and no area should be penalised for um, for either having low levels and just the goal being to sustain them or the fact that they have low levels high levels when it's personally it's quite common uh, for cities like london for instance or cities like manchester mega you know larger cities to have unique challenges um, you know that need a, a slightly different approach mm-hmm. i think if you kind of work in this space for long enough um, you see a lot of different policies come and go and sometimes it starts to feel quite quite cyclical, the same ideas coming again. Do, do yeah. you think we measure well enough how successful different policies are? And 
are there are there any policies that you've seen that you think are, are working particularly well in the UK right now? Well, um, uh, that's a very good question. And you just need to look across uh, the Atlantic to see how, in terms of universal prevention, we're certainly doing better <laughs> than our neighbors in North America. And I think that's something that we don't often don't talk about, and it's important to reflect on. We shouldn't take it for granted. Um, if the NHS wasn't here, <laughs> um, I think we'd be looking at very different levels of homelessness, for instance, and yet we don't often talk about the role of um, uh, things like the NHS or uh, the, the universal education system. Mm. Um, uh, when it comes to things like you know how the focus that we've started placing on prevention for things like the, the introduction of housing options mm-hmm. um, uh, you know in England and then you know it was also introduced in other nations that's clearly having an impact where there's still a gap it's certainly around the the level of of experimentation that we put when introducing specific policies and trying to understand the relative effectiveness of different ways of doing, say, outreach or of helping different groups, because different types of people affected by street homelessness, um, different things may work for them. And yet we we haven't yet focused a lot on trying out rigorously different ways of doing things, whether it's with different workers, whether it's, you know, ensuring that we're focusing on different ethnic groups in slightly different ways, experimenting to see what works better and what's more value for money, if you like. So that's a particular area. It's one of the areas that, um, you know, we're, we're very focused on um, uh, exactly because, you know, in in terms of universal prevention, uh, we shouldn't take it for granted, and there's more that could be done. To give you an example, an obvious one is the fact that you know in England we really need to strengthen um, you know security in the private rented sector, and the white paper is being overdue, and that's something that we can obviously uh, give more attention to. So there's there's things like that that are obvious uh, things that you can start looking into, but we have other problems that are more complicated, I guess, to address. There are more systems issues that require more empirical experimentation. And that's what we don't always name and we don't always acknowledge. To give you an example, the levels of people in TA in England, they haven't happened by accident and they're not necessarily a bad thing. They happen precisely because we have strong legal duties towards people at risk Um, or people affected by homelessness. We should not take that for granted. Many countries don't have that, um, including in the global north. Uh, So then it creates a systems issue around how on earth, in any particular area, do we make sure that the flow of people into longer-term accommodation is is as effective as possible? It's not because local areas are not trying to do it. It's quite a a tricky systems issue that requires better experimentation. So that's, you know, generally speaking, quite good at prevention, universal prevention, we could do better for sure. Mm -hmm. Still too much focus on crisis, you know, responses. Mm-hmm. as happens in, in most of their areas. Um, but let's not take it, uh, in, let's not think that these things are problems because they're easy to solve because quite a few of the things that are problems <laughs> are quite difficult and they do require different ways of doing things rather than just doing the same things with the same people. Uh, that's not going to um, you know, lead to the changes that we want to see.
All right. Well, thank you so much for, for that, Ligia. It was really great to get the perspective from other countries. That's really insightful. You're very welcome, Lucy. Nice talking to you. Well, that was really interesting. It's really interesting to hear kind of the comparisons between different countries around the world. We don't really hear that. Yeah, and I think like a point that really stuck with me is when Ligia was talking about some of the policies that we have in the UK that we really take for granted. For example, mm. the universal health care and the fact that councils here have legal duties to provide at least some people with temporary accommodation. And it's quite shocking to hear that other countries don't even have that. Um, but the policy landscape is far from perfect in the UK. And that was really the topic of my conversation with the next person I spoke to, who is Jasmine Bajran, who is the Policy and Parliamentary Affairs Manager at Crisis. Um, and when I asked her whether she thought the government was on track to end rough sleeping by 2024, her answer was a bit different than Ligia's. So in my honest view, I think we're in danger of meeting that target right now. Um, Obviously, over the last couple of years, we've actually seen something pretty extraordinary in the pandemic um, in terms of the support that has been offered to people sleeping rough. Um, so we had the launch of the Everyone In scheme, which is what well, it was a landmark scheme from government in the course of literally a weekend. Thousands of people who were sleeping rough or who were on the sofas of friends or family or even strangers were helped into safe accommodation. And we saw a concerted effort on that for, you know, a, a solid year. Um, and we're still seeing that from some local authorities. But in the last few months um, to a year, we've we've seen support wind down for people sleeping rough and at risk. Um, and we're not seeing things like the government set out really clearly how they're going to meet their manifesto commitment, um, especially building on what's happened in the pandemic, learning lessons from everyone in. We're not seeing that vision. So I'm I'm worried about it being met. Um, we're only two years away from it. Um, and I can't see a clear path to it at the moment. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, what do you think needs to change if the government is to meet that target in two years? So, I mean, there's a, there's quite a number of things as you might expect. Um, a huge thing, though, is if we look at the statistics. So at the moment, the statistics kind of are showing rough sleeping isn't um, the level it was before the pandemic. So before we had this everyone in scheme, we had this huge kind of change in how people were supported. So we're still it's good in that sense that there's still we're still not back to those levels but we still have thousands of people sleeping rough right now when we're talking there's thousands of people sleeping rough on our street that is just completely unacceptable um and what we also know from the statistics is that the group of people that are starting to tick up and kind of be seen as living on the streets. So that means, um, you know, night after night, they are on the streets, they're not getting supported um, into other forms of accommodation, or they're returning from the street, uh, from accommodation, if they are helped. Um, they're people with high support needs. So people who might have mental health, physical health, and they're just not getting the right support. Um, and this is a really big and growing problem. Um, but 
we actually have a solution and the government knows the solution funnily enough um there's a scheme called housing first and it is designed to help people in this exact situation so people with histories of sleeping rough people who um you know have been failed by the homelessness system or have been supported into accommodation that just wasn't suitable wasn't helpful um and the government are running pilots on the scheme they have pilots um, in Birmingham, in Manchester, in Liverpool, and um, everything coming out of those pilots is showing that it works for people. So those pilots support over a thousand people. They have, you know, histories of sleeping rough. I think 96% of those people have slept rough um, since they were 18 at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and some have slept rough multiple times. And yet more than, I think on average, 90% of the people being helped are are now sustaining their tenancy you know they're not returning to the streets they're not being evicted from from where they live and things like that so the government knows what would help in this space but we're not seeing movement on this we're not seeing ambition we're not seeing vision you know obviously housing first is a really popular idea in the homelessness sector and it's something that a lot of people in the homelessness sector have been talking about for a long time and like you say the government has even been talking about it for a long time. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it was 2018 when those pilots started. Um, yeah. what, what do you think is preventing it from being scaled up into a kind of more like mainstream way of supporting people experiencing homelessness like across the entire country rather than just in these pilot areas? And that is a really great question. Um, before I, I say why I think this isn't happening, I will say that you know, we know, we can see in the pilots how it works and there's things to learn from that, you know, from the organisations providing Housing First, from obviously the the mayor, the mayors and the local authorities working to, to deliver it. So we, we definitely need to build on what is happening in the pilots. And one of the areas that we need to see really focus on is the increase in genuinely affordable housing so social rent housing um that has been a barrier already to deliver the pilots mm-hmm. so that is a key question that the government needs to look at and that isn't just for housing first that's for all of homelessness because you know the lack of genuinely affordable housing is a huge barrier to ending homelessness and we're starting to see it impact people who aren't homeless or at risk you know going into the private rented sector and not even being able to afford things there um, so that's a big question that is a barrier but the other side of this i really think it is political will and ambition so before march 2020 if someone had described to you the everyone in scheme we wouldn't have had the everyone in scheme we wouldn't have had it in the way it happened um it wouldn't be as quick as it happened it wouldn't be as successful as it was because you know at the end of the day The pandemic has been absolutely awful um, and it still is. It's having devastating consequences. But a small silver lining was that it also showed us what's possible when we work together and when there's political will to actually achieve a goal. So the instruction on everyone in was really clear. The government were really clear that they were backing it. Um, They put money behind it um, and they, they mobilized. They gave support where it was needed to make it possible. So there is a lack of political will and ambition in this space um, to kind of put um, a real kind of push behind Housing First to actually work out, you know, how can we make the homelessness systems 
as effective as possible so that people don't have to sleep rough to then access help so that people don't have to kind of be living in a hostel for a long time or stuck in temporary accommodation for a long time um, before their homelessness is ended and the two sides of that are housing as I mentioned and the political will and ambition the, the vision which is where we really want to see a strategy, an updated strategy on how the government's going to tackle rough sleeping. What about other policy areas? Um, you know, the ministers responsible for ending rough sleeping, they sit in the, I was going to say MHCLG, but <laughs> the levelling up department. But like, as we all know, that there's much broader policy, policies that need to change that they don't have control over. I'm thinking like the Department for Working Pensions and the Home Office, like, what other broader policies from those areas would need to change if we're to meet this goal? Yeah, I mean, so even on Housing First, this needs to sit across all governments um, because, uh, sorry, all departments, not governments, but it needs to sit across the different departments, like you've just said, um, because there's obviously the housing side and housing supply, which is an issue, but there's the support side that needs to be delivered. So we need health involved. Um, you know, we know where people are supported successfully out of rough sleeping, the agency approach. So that will mean the local authority in the room, health bodies in the room, mental health professionals, um, job centre where relevant, because then they for people to be able to access financial support, um, the police where relevant and not for enforcement, but for support, because often this is the thing, like people will be in contact with their GP or with police or different services outside of the local authority. Um, so we need every single department working together on this. Um, and then there are specific things that other departments need to be lead, leading on. So one thing is financial support. So from the DWP, for example, um, you know, one of the things that we're hearing so much about is the cost of living crisis and the financial families are facing. Um, and this is going to undoubtedly lead to increases in homelessness if, if nothing is done. Um, and it may lead to increases in rough sleeping. Um, and then another huge area is um, for people um, born outside of, of the UK. There's lots of people who come here um you know to start a new life they come here for work they are working you know contributing to the economy um and a huge impact we've seen of the pandemic is obviously on jobs we've seen lots and lots of people working zero hour contracts working in insecure employment or just working in jobs that then were no longer feasible in the pandemic now not have those jobs and really struggle to get financial support um, and the people who struggle the most to get financial support are people um, often that will have like a condition attached to their immigration status called no recourse to public funds. So that means, you know, if they are stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place and can't find job at the moment, which is what we saw in the pandemic, they can't even access things like universal credit to see them through. Um, so we, we have lots of people who are homeless because of um, that policy because of no recourse to public funds um, and we need to see we need to see a change in that it, it's quite simple that that cannot go on because we know it is a driver of homelessness so to meet the commitment to end rough sleeping the government needs to interrogate that policy it needs to interrogate what it, you know the role it's playing in people sleeping rough and how to ensure that it isn't driving further rough sleeping. The government says it's going to end rough sleeping by 2024, but 
what it hasn't necessarily said yet is what exactly that means from your perspective what what do you think a kind of end of rough sleeping would actually look like so we sometimes talk about um at crisis um functional zero um, and this is a measure that you know other countries are using in terms of looking at the levels of rough sleeping um, and functional zero so what we know is that if you change policies and law and you know practice and you back everything with funding we can prevent homelessness and we can end homelessness mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that there's never going to be a case where someone isn't sleeping rough mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately there are going to be times when you know that happens for example in a in a domestic abuse case or someone fleeing domestic abuse however there is absolutely no reason why that number needs to be thousands mm -hmm. when we talk about functional zero we mean it may be the case that a small number of people might be forced onto the streets due to various reasons but if that happens there needs to be a system and a response in place to make sure that firstly that that's a rare occurrence mm -hmm. it's brief so if you if you end up on the street it shouldn't be more than a night um and it, it doesn't reoccur so you don't then go back onto the streets mm -hmm. after you've been linked into services and, and support so functional zero it means that yes you might count there may be some people sleeping rough it should be a small number because the systems the support the funding should be in place to make that achievable and we know that that is true um but then if someone is forced for a night that that's it it shouldn't be more than that um the other thing that we obviously and the sector of course means by that is that it is a genuine end to homelessness it's not then because one thing we do have in our system at the moment is you might be supported out of rough sleeping but let's say you're supported into a shelter mm -hmm. that's still pretty close to rough sleeping you're you're still homeless you, you still don't have a home and so you're still transient in in the system and that's probably the biggest issue with the system at the moment because we saw this incredible effort to everyone in but obviously it has resulted in more people in temporary accommodation yeah. um so you can't keep just you know having lots and lots of people in temporary accommodation which sometimes is really poor quality you don't get basic kind of amenities um families that get supported into accommodation sometimes they're nowhere near like their support networks or where their children are going to school so it's not a sustainable response to just say we're going to put people in in bed and breakfast or hotels and this is where we come back around to the question of housing um and support like the funding for genuinely affordable housing and for the support needed because in a system that works people would as quickly as possible be be supported into a home for their own you know not a not a temporary place which we know you know there's lots to say i mean you can imagine it yourself when i'm sure pretty much everyone listening to this would have moved at some point mm -hmm. like imagine you move but you think okay well i'll only be there for a couple of weeks and then you move again and you think okay well i'll only be here for four months or, two, or a year like even just having that in your mind is so difficult you can't build your life you can't start like you know doing the things you want because you're constantly thinking well i'm going to be moving or something's going to change and just waiting for that change um so that you know that, for me that's a really big issue in the system and something that government needs to understand and start really kind of trying to tackle i mean yeah that's the thing the problem is a lot bigger than rough sleeping isn't it well thank you very much for coming on the podcast jasmine we really appreciate it
No, it was really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Some really interesting comments there um, on temporary accommodation. I think it's like you said right at the end there, Lucy, people often think of homelessness as just rough sleeping, but it's obviously a lot, lot more. There's thousands of people in temporary accommodation. Um, what What is the kind of situation at the moment? Yeah, so I don't have the latest figures off the top of my head, but, you, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people living in temporary accommodation across the country and I'm really glad that Jasmine brought it up because I think for some people that I've spoken to in the homelessness sector in the last year or so people are a bit worried that like on the one hand it is really great that there's this focus on rough sleeping and that the the government has this really focused target but we can't solve rough sleeping by just increasing the number of people in temporary accommodation and I think there there's a bit of a fear of that happening right now and you know like Jasmine explained temporary accommodation can you know in some cases be really horrible like really bad conditions and some people actually you know choose to sleep rough rather than live in temporary accommodation so we can't lose sight of that as we're talking about rough sleeping um and I think that kind of perfectly brings me to the final person that I interviewed for today's podcast um Paul Atherton is a filmmaker and campaigner who has been experiencing homelessness for 11 years and he was provided accommodation under the Everyone In initiative. Um, Paul spoke to me about what the last couple of years have been like for him and whether he feels like the government is on track to end rough sleeping. Hi Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I want to start by taking you back to March 2020. I think it's a month that everyone listening to the podcast will remember really well. And I think we can all picture vividly where we were when Boris Johnson did that first news broadcast telling us that the country was going into lockdown. So where were you when all of this was going on? I was currently using Terminal 5 at Heathrow Airport as a bedroom, as was indeed about 300 uh, other people. And obviously his was the second announcement, the first being Sadiq Khan's announcement the week before saying that there were 300 hotel rooms. So we got very excited about this and then discovered, of course, that was just to do with the mayor's office. And if you weren't associated with a charity with the mayor's office, so that kind of depleted. But when Boris Johnson announced it and basically, obviously, the term everyone in came from that notion that, you know, get everyone in by the weekend. We were at ground zero. Um, you know, we were at the airport. The Wuhan flights were coming, landing in with Wuhan people coughing as they went through the terminal. So we were going, oh, we're going to be first in. But of course, we weren't. It took at least another week and a lot of screaming in the press before anybody actually realized that they should send people out to us. And we were taken in on the 1st of April. So what happened next? Where did you go? Yeah, so um, a, a mishmash of organisations were kind of sent out, Thamesreach, um, the airport has its own social work team there called Travel Care, um, Green Cross, I think it was, was an organisation. So the original reaction to most people there was, this is the state charities, we're not going to get involved. And I was more receptive than most. And a couple of us joined the queue to find out what was going on. And in essence, we were given a very quick check. We were asked whether we had any symptoms of COVID, whether we were coughing or lost taste. They then measured our temperature. And based on the responses to that, you were basically tiered. So if you had 
or were showing symptoms, you would be placed in a quarantine hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were vulnerable, you'd be placed in other hotels. And if you were just general, then you were scattered across the city of London. So I was first offered a place in Croydon, which I immediately turned down for a variety of reasons. But the biggest one is that you become very au fait with knowing that you need to have a local connection with a local authority Mm -hmm. and realizing that you were probably going to be stuck three months somewhere, that if you were stuck three months in Croydon, wherever your actual borough was, I'll be going, ah, no, 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 you've lived in Croydon for three months. So we weren't doing any of that. So Mm -hmm. I ended up in a uh, travel lodge over in Allgate East, Mm -hmm. uh, but I was only there for two nights. So whilst I'd been at the airport and whilst these announcements had come out, we had been notified by Thamesreach, who'd sort of done a track around the airport, that the airport was closing, which wasn't the case at all, uh, and that we had to be out by Friday, which again wasn't the case at all. But at that point, I got in touch with Westminster City Council, which is the borough that I've registered to vote in and I've been located in for the last 11 years. Mm -hmm. They... Uh, so I was then put on their system. So two days after I was taken in under the GLA apportionment, I was then transferred to Westminster City Council. I was given uh, to a hotel manager whose hotel was full. So he'd reached out to various Airbnb accommodations around and that was where I was placed. So I was actually placed in an Airbnb accommodation that was attached to the hotel that I was apportioned to. So what was it like those kind of first few months of the pandemic I mean how how long before that point had you been homeless and and what was it like to kind of have that stable place that you've been given right well I've experienced homelessness now for or 13 years so I lost my home due to a credit file error back in 2009 Uh, and I was living in a very nice apartment most people would call it a luxury apartment by standards today there was erroneous information on my credit file. It took me 18 months to get it removed by the Information Commissioner's Office, which should have done it in 28 days. And by that time, everything had just sort of collapsed. And you suddenly realize just how fragile the system is. Mm-hmm. During that period of time, I have been through pretty much every initiative London has to throw at the homelessness problem from no second night in, um, been in temporary accommodation, been in hostel accommodation, slept in my car as, as a bedroom for two years, slept in other people's cars as my bedroom for another two years, and then eventually found myself residing at Heathrow Airport Terminal 5 for about two and a half years. So when this announcement came out that you know people were being housed in hotels, the, the, the initial reaction was, mm, okay, where's this going to lead? Yeah. And then the first two weeks, the first two weeks of sort of being taken in, everybody had a sense that actually there's a really good chance we can solve the problem now. Mm -hmm. There is never going to be an opportunity like this, again, probably in anybody's lifetime, where the only thing left to talk about was people experiencing homelessness. Because everything else was shut. There was no government, there was no shops, there was no retail, nothing was happening, nobody was moving, nobody was going out. Mm-hmm. Um, so suddenly it was like, this is the problem laid bare. And we've never had an opportunity like that. You just wander the streets and the only people are gonna be left out there are the people experiencing homelessness. So 
for the first two weeks, it was really exciting. It was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, this is it. This, Britain is going to solve this problem overnight, literally overnight. Um, that didn't last very long. By the time I, two weeks in, I was already aware of being pe people being ejected from the hotel back to the streets. Really? Um, one of the big problems was it was not a coordinated effort. It was a knee-jerk effort, which was great in the first bit. And the idea of just getting everybody in, don't ask people questions, don't ask them ID, don't put blocks in their way. Just go, are you experiencing homelessness? Yes, get into a hotel and get safe. Yeah. That was brilliant. But after that, it was chaos. You know, there, it was a, it was a postcode lottery of whether you were getting food. It was a postcode lottery if you were getting any kind of medical support. It depended which accommodation were you in allowed you to do certain things. So, for instance, if you were, you know, an addicted smoker and you're being told that you had to reside in your room for 23 hours a day, seven days a week, they, 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 there was this sort of notion that people were breaking what would be considered under the circumstances really minor infractions of having a drink or smoking a cigarette. If they were unlucky to be in a travel lodge, which had kind of had this blanket, nobody smokes in the room, you know, again, sort of that's law. Um, or you, you could be in Airbnb accommodation and you'd be able to smoke and drink into what, what you liked. Yeah. So there, there was this sort of disparity between groups where they were. And there was just no support. There was no support anywhere. So it was the grassroots organizations like the Museum of Homelessness, like Streets Kitchen, that... Um, came and, and filled those gaps very rapidly. They, they you know, they, they created a, a group amongst them here in London and, and were immediately going out making people, sure people were fed. But the infrastructure wasn't there. So if you if you were a drug addict, for instance, nobody was making sure that you were getting your, your appropriate drugs. If, if you were suffering with alcoholism, there was nobody there supporting those kind of things. But equally, the idea that someone who's been surrounded by people all their lives is suddenly now locked in a cage for all intents and purposes wasn't being addressed at all mm -hmm. so even if you had a you know a, a perfect life albeit absent of a home you were suddenly placed into a place which, which was like okay I, I've got no contact with anybody I don't know what's happening I've got no carers I mean in my instance the classic example in my instance I suffer with a disease known as MECFS um, which is most people know as chronic fatigue syndrome and at its worst, when I crash, I am bedridden and unable to talk. Mm -hmm. And during this process, I, I almost died of dehydration because I had a crash and no one was checking in on me. And four days later, I hadn't had, been able to get up to drink liquids. And, and to, to think you could have died of dehydration under the care of the state seems like a ludicrous proposition, but that's exactly what was happening. Mm -hmm. So in the first instance, it was great. It was exciting. It demonstrated we could fix the problem. No problem at all, actually. If, if the right mindset and the right policy and the right drive was all in place and people were told to get rid of the rules, let's just fix the problem. Lo and behold, we were fixing the problem. Um, but then very, very quickly, the rules started coming back in. People started getting thrown out and you could see within the first three weeks of everyone in that the people backed out on the streets, the numbers were rising at a rapid rate. And so where are you now? Do you have accommodation now? Yeah. Um, so I was taken in, as I say, into Airbnb accommodation in Edgeware Road. Mm -hmm. And that was perfect. I had a kitchen there. I had a, you know, a, my own bathroom and shower, which 
you know, for someone experiencing homelessness, these are the things you don't get access to, yeah. you know, to, to, to go get a shower. I had to travel on the Piccadilly line to King's Cross to get out to go to the local fitness center, get better fitness center there because that's the best one for the best shampoo and the best <laughs> conditioners and they don't charge you for towels. So you pay uh, £2.50 and you, you're able to get a shower, whereas then I was able to get up in the morning and walk straight into the shower. I was able to cook and I'm a good cook. So it was kind of, that was great. I had a few bits of pots and pans, so I was able to eat three times a day, which is something unheard of. I normally live on a Tesco meal deal once a day. So suddenly my health was improved. I was able to exercise and all the things that you'd associate with getting indoors sort of rose. And I was there for the period of everyone in, which was from April to July. Mm -hmm. In July, 2020, it was then back into the rules. So then I had to apply to see if Westminster Council would assist me. So then they extend it for another 56 days so they can investigate all the rules. And I'm sure most people know about these rules now, but you have to prove you've got local connection to that local authority before they'll help you. You have to prove you have priority need Mm -hmm. before they help you. Now, I don't know why homelessness in itself is not a priority need, but it's not considered as such. Um, you have to prove you have recourse to public funds. You have to prove that you weren't made intentionally homeless, which I think is the most ludicrous thing ever. And then you have to prove that you are actually homeless. And that's a really strange one because you have to prove the absence of something. Now, most people are able to prove, you know, do you have a computer? Yes, here is a computer. I have a computer. But if somebody said, prove you don't have a computer, I'm not entirely sure how you go about doing that. You're like going... I, I'm not holding a computer, therefore I, I, I don't have one. Um, but again, these are all the, the sort of barriers you have to go to uh, for assistance. And for me with Westminster Council, they had originally refused to help me because I couldn't prove that I was homeless. And I was like, check my credit file. If you check my credit file, you find I've not been on the electoral register. I've not had a credit card. I've not had a bank account. I've not had, I've not had, I've not had. And that will clearly show to you, because proceeding to the point that I, I said I was homeless, I, you know, I was pristine. Everything was on there. And then post the date, there's nothing there. And they found that I had car insurance because I was sleeping in my car. Yeah. And deemed that sufficient enough to prove that I wasn't homeless. So I was like, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. So we come forward now 11 years since that day, and they're still trying to suggest that I hadn't been homeless in that 11 years based on the fact that they'd assumed that I hadn't been homeless because of that bit of information on a credit file. So they basically went, we're not going to assist you, mm-hmm. but we're not kicking you out. We're, we're going to transfer you to something called the rough sleeping team in Westminster city council. Now, it's unclear, even to someone as experienced in all of these systems as I am, what the differences are. You've got a housing team and then a rough sleeping team and then a charity that's run by something that may or may not be associated to the council. So f- from a user's perspective, it's no different. It's Westminster City Council. Yeah. But now I'm under a, a different division. They said they're going to assist in, in finding me more permanent accommodation which in local authorities' parlance means we should find you a six-month tenancy. Mm-hmm. And if anybody thinks that that is finding someone permanent accommodation, you know, that, that is basically a holiday let for rich people, right? You know, you, you go somewhere for the summer and you come back for the winter. Um, 
but this is how the local authorities see it. So that was what they were supposed to do. But since October 2020, I have been on a rolling threat of eviction every four weeks. Um, so they'll say, ah, right, 1st of November, Mr. Afton, you've got to be out. Nope, we're going to leave it until the 1st of December. Nope, it's the 1st of January now. And that has gone all the way up until here we are in 2022. Yeah. And in February 2022, I was notified by the accommodation manager here that he could no longer accommodate me. The people that, uh, the, that are renting it out want the accommodation back. And I have heard nothing from Westminster City Council. I have emailed them daily since being notified of this and not got a response. My uh, support network and people like the Museum of Homelessness and Citizen State and even <laughs> the, the accommodation manager here all emailed the rough sleeping team, Westminster City Council, uh, my adult social services team and have got no response. So the only thing I know is happening at the end of February is I'm going to be back on the streets and no one seems liable or responsible. And having that threat over you every month must have made it impossible for you to kind of plan anything in your life in any way. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, and, and this, I think, is one of the biggest ironies and one of the things that's misunderstood by the public more than anything is that people who are experiencing homelessness, especially in London, have probably been through some kind of assistance and quit it. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been put in temporary accommodation, but it's so disgusting. It's it's healthier for them to be living on the street than in black mold um, that they've jumped through all the necessary hoops. But their DWP suddenly stopped unexpectedly. And if they don't have their DWP, they don't have their uh, benefits. They don't have their housing benefit. They don't have their housing benefit. They're, they're back out. Yeah. And unlike a tenancy agreement where it takes some months in which time you could get these things sorted, if you're on a license which is most temporary accommodation is issued on what they call a license. It means they can get you out in less than 24 hours. So it, you have none of the protections and it's actually all of the state mechanism is causing the problem. It's got you know, very little ever actually to do with the individuals. It's to do with the, the mechanics of the state, which means often you have way more security being back on the streets than you do living inside. Mm. And so, as you rightly point out, because I had this threat of eviction every four weeks, it is impossible to do anything. Whereas when I was sleeping at Heathrow Terminal 5, I had way more protections. They, 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 you've got 24-hour security keeping a check on you. You've got people who are trained first aiders keeping a check on you. They have wheelchairs, so if I crash, they're able to move me and get me around. The accommodation I'm in now, my wheelchair wouldn't get out of the door. You know, yeah. you're going to have to come and stretch me out. Um, and sometimes, times, you know, obviously, as, as I said previously, my MECFS forces me to be, being bedridden. Um, and when you're bedridden, that's fine. But there are other times where you can actually do and access things if, if you have access to your wheelchair. All of those have been taken away because I'm in this temporary accommodation. Mm -hmm. um, and the current temporary accommodation I'm in, I don't have a workable kitchen here, so I've lost that ability, which means my diet's gone out. My benefits have been stopped since October 2020. Um, and the housing benefit, uh, sorry, the housing team at Westminster Council said, oh, we'll sort this because we need this sorted to be able to assist you. 
and I discover that last December that that hasn't been the case. So now I've got to go to court to try and persuade the court to let me appeal a decision that I was still to this day don't actually know why they've made the decision. And there are all of these component bits. So what you find is it is easier and simpler to control your life when you are experiencing homelessness on the streets, rough sleeping, than it is when you're under the sort of the auspices of all these state controlled variants, none of whom communicate to each other. Um, and none of them who are actually doing the things that you can function at Heathrow Airport or on night buses or whatever, however you're doing it, it's much easier to control your life then than it is when other people own it. That's such an interesting insight, like you say, I think that is very different than a, a lot of the general public's per- perception of what experiencing homelessness is like. So I guess the question that we are kind of asking in the podcast today is, is the government on track to end rough sleeping? Because as you will know, the government has a target to end rough sleeping by 2024. We're getting ever closer to it. Um, I have suspicions of what your answer might be. <laughs> yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Are they on track? Um, I don't even think they're looking at the target, let alone aiming for it. If a government was genuine about ending rough sleeping in 2024, they would have taken the advantage of what they had of everyone in in 2020. They would have gone, right, we are never going to have a better situation than this to end rough sleeping Mm -hmm. for good. We only had four years to do it. Let's take advantage. Let's get everybody into hotel rooms. Once they're into hotel rooms, let's figure ways of getting them their home, whatever that may be. That may not be a tenancy. It may be, actually, I'm much better off in a hotel room, providing it comes under the local authority rates. And, you know, how many hotels aren't desperate to fill their rooms at the moment? We're not getting the tourists back. We're not, you know, that, or I want a caravan or I want a boat because it's cheaper. I don't want the overheads, you know, or that, There are so many variables that you could choose as a permanent way of living in a home, but the only option that you're given is here's a six-month tenancy. And for many people, especially if you've been out for years, if you're not telling them here's five years of safety or 10 years of safety, if you're going there six months of safety, it's like, well, what's the point? My benefits don't get fixed in six months. <laughs> it takes 12 to 18 months just to sort my benefits out. You know, I've got to take them to appeal and then they've got to repay it. Da, 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 da. Um, so if there was a l- real legitimate interest in ending homelessness by 2024, you would see a completely different approach mm-hmm. to what is being currently driven. You would see a removal of all the rules. You would see a clear an understandable route in which to get assistance as opposed to a myriad of different organizations you can go to and you're never sure who's doing what and what bit they're doing. Um, and then you would have people talking about it daily in a way that we talk about COVID rates. We've, you know, we've only got this amount of number left to, to, to house. And once you've got everybody off, it doesn't stop. You know, people will still lose their homes because we have unscrupulous landlords. We have people uh, still getting screwed like me by the very systems that are supposed to protect us in terms of banking and credit files and all of these kind of things. So it's it's never going to end. But what has to end is the notion that anybody should be sleeping on the street. The notion that homelessness is a thing that's acceptable in modern society. It isn't. It should, ne- it should never have been. But we, we've accepted it for centuries. But in the 21st century, 
In the 21st century, there is genuinely no reason for it. In Britain, we have over a million empty properties just sitting so someone can use it as an asset to borrow money. That's all they buy it for. They have no intention of renting it out. They have no intention of using it for accommodation. It's called money boxing, and they just leave them empty. And it's an ascending asset. Property goes up in money, and you just borrow money against it, so you get low interest. And, and you're kind of going, that should not be allowed. Airbnb should be banned. Airbnb is a massive problem. It's been banned in Amsterdam. It's been banned in Paris. You know, why haven't we done it here yet? So there, there are so many. We should bring rent caps back in. Rent caps only disappeared in the 1980s. We should get, well, we have actually got rid of, um, although have we? He suddenly thinks. They, there was talk about getting rid of no-fault evictions. I'm not actually sure if that law has been passed yet. It's a, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's in the process, yeah. but not we're not there yet. <laughs> but, you know, all, all of these things are the reason people are experiencing homelessness, and they've got nothing to do with the individuals. These are state-driven legislative policy that have changed the environment that went from people buying a home to people buying an investment or their pension scheme or their income. Um, you know, people make a very good living out of Airbnb, but it's not good for the rental market because you make five, 10 times more renting out Airbnb than you would on a rental market. And you have way more responsibilities in the rental market than you do in the Airbnb market. So all, all of these sort of component bits need to be eradicated and if we're not seeing those shifts, then clearly the government has no genuine intent of ending rough sleeping by 2024. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me, Paul. Um, it was really great to hear your perspective on everything. Thanks for having me on. So I recorded that interview with Paul a couple of weeks ago now, but I caught up with him again today and he told me that not much has changed and that he still doesn't know what's going to happen with his house in beyond a couple of weeks from now. I also asked Westminster Council about the situation and they sent me a statement from David Harvey, who's cabinet member for housing there, that says, the council's offered considerable support to Mr. Asherton over a number of years and gone to great lengths to find him housing. As part of the Ever and In scheme over summer 2020, the council provided Mr. Asherton with secure emergency accommodation. We're continuing to engage with him on finding more permanent housing. Well, a lot of food for thought there, um, Lucy. Uh, thanks very much for pulling this together and being with us today, Lucy. Um, this has been the Housing Podcast. If you want to read all of Lucy's great reporting on homelessness and rough sleeping, you can visit our website, insidehousing.co.uk. Um, that is us for today.